Hi there, and welcome to Good Distinctions. My name is Will Wright, and I'm your host today. If you previously listened to this podcast, you'll know it was Will Wright Catholic. Well, now it's been rebranded and rebooted as Good Distinctions, along with my co-host and co-owner, Teresa Morris. And I'm very excited about all the content that we have planned for you. But today, we're going to be talking about the meaning of blood in sacred scripture, looking at it symbolically, what is its meaning, uh, and why does that matter? And I think it's going to be an interesting conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed putting it together. So before we get to that, if you haven't yet subscribed to us on Substack, please go to gooddistinctions.com and you can sign up for free or paid. Uh, we have subscriptions starting as low as $5 a month. We are putting out two to three uh, or more paid articles per month um, that are substantial. I think the last one that I wrote was around 7,000 words uh, on some really interesting topics getting in, in pretty deep. Uh, podcasts and conversation videos will all be, always be available on YouTube and Facebook, uh, as well as here on Substack with links. But uh, if you'd like to support us, we, we absolutely would uh, appreciate that, and we thank you for considering it. And if you can't support us financially right now, no problem. Uh, I just ask that you please pray for the, this channel, for good distinctions, and for all the work that Teresa and I are doing. We rely on your prayers and on God's grace to continue to uh, push us forward, because we really believe that this is a Holy Spirit-led endeavor. And so, welcome. What do we do at Good Distinctions? We're all about reigniting good conversation, finding the best distinctions possible, and inspiring others to do the same. So, without further ado, let's get to it. Each person has a slightly different perspective, even if the truth remains the same. The reality of the object under observation does not change because someone's viewing it. Instead, we just see it differently. This can result from different individual experiences, certain genetic predispositions, cultural or religious backgrounds, or even the context of a given moment. Sometimes making good distinctions is finding what we call in the Catholic Church the both-and that characterizes a very Catholic approach rather than a sterile either-or approach. Most words have one particular meaning, but there's some words which are packed with multiple meanings. Words which hold the most versatility of meaning are those things that are most fundamental to the human experience, like water, fire, and uh, you know, the sun. And, and water is life-giving, but it can also cause us to drown. Fire gives warmth and cooks our food, but it can easily kill us as well. One of the most vital substances in our life is blood. And this is what I want to investigate today, especially the symbolic meaning of blood in sacred scripture. So what is the symbolic meaning of blood? That's probably a good place to start. Oftentimes when we hear the word blood, a few different things might come to mind. One of the first things I think about is vampires, horror movies, Halloween, that sort of thing. A medical professional might immediately think of a healthy circulatory system and blood pumping through the body. But most of the time when we see blood, it's often associated with injury, bleeding, and resulting pain and trauma and potentially medical procedures. Or maybe human blood didn't even come to mind. Maybe you pictured a nice, juicy ribeye steak, which is perfectly fine in my book. Whatever the case may be, blood is vital to our being alive. But seeing it outside of the body is an indication that something is seriously wrong. And this imagery and symbolism in the Bible is no less complicated and really interesting to investigate. So I hope that you enjoy this presentation. 
And so I want to begin in the beginning of the Old Testament, right back in Genesis. In the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis, after the fall of man, we see the sons of Adam, Cain and Abel. Abel is a shepherd and Cain works the ground. God was pleased with Abel's offering, but not with Cain's. And the response of Cain to this was anger. God offered him a warning. He said, if you do, if you do not do well, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. That's from Genesis 4, 7. So Cain in anger and jealousy committed the first murder. The unity of the family of man was shattered. Not only was it murder, it was fratricide. He killed his brother. And then we read this. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. This is from Genesis 4, 9 to 15. We know from the first two chapters of Genesis that God created man in his image and likeness, and we know that he breathed life into the first man. Human life is precious to God. The shedding of innocent human blood by Cain is an abomination, not just because it's his brother, but because he killed um, a living human being, an innocent human being. The voice of Abel's blood, the Lord says, is crying out to him from the ground. And this is a fairly odd thing to say, right? Blood does not usually cry out. But God is highlighting that innocent human life and the bodily integrity of an innocent person is important to him. The shedding of innocent blood cries out to God for justice. The innocent blood of Abel has even cursed the ground by Cain's hand, right? Cain's a worker of the ground. He's a farmer, and now it bears nothing. And it's all his doing. This Thus, we see the devastating effects of evil and sin. Even once forgiven, some sins, like murder, can never be put right. Though God does not try to destroy Cain, he rightly demands restitution and even de- dishes out divine punishment in justice. So far, we see that blood is life and innocent human life is, uh, belongs untouched. And, and further, when innocent human blood is spilled, there's catastrophic consequences. And so now let's look at Exodus, the Nile turning into blood. During the 10 plagues of the Lord against Pharaoh in the book of Exodus and the false Egyptian deities, he turns the Nile River to blood. And Pharaoh, yet again, did not let the Israelites go out into the desert to worship God. Like the murder of Abel by his brother Cain, this direct refusal to obey God demands justice and retribution. God demonstrates his power over nature and his power over the Egyptian god Hopi, who the Egyptians believed to bring fertility to the land with the annual flooding of the Nile. So just as blood is necessary in the human body, water is necessary in the vein. By turning the Nile to blood, fish died, the water was non-potable, and the economy of the region took a severe hit. And it's interesting that blood, which is so necessary for life, was the cause of so much death and chaos. Through blood, though blood, though blood in the Nile was death for the Egyptians, it was eventually life and freedom for the Israelites. So in the book of Exodus, we also see the blood of the Passover lamb. And this dual symbolism of blood, of life and death, 
is exceptionally prominent in the Passover. The Israelites are in bondage to the Egyptians, and over the course of nine plagues, Pharaoh refused to let God's people go into the wilderness to worship him. In the tenth and final plague, God took the lives of every firstborn in the land. The way that the angel of death would know to pass over the homes of the Israelites and thus spare the firstborn was to sacrifice a lamb and mark the doorpost with its blood. The next day, they hastily departed from Egypt and were freed. In the Passover, we see the blood of the lamb preserving the Israelites from death. And sometime later, we see the blood of the lamb, Jesus, the lamb of God, preserving those in covenant with him from eternal death. So by the death of this sacrificial lamb, the people of God were granted life. Not only were they preserved from life, but the, from death rather, but the blood of the lamb allowed them to enter into a new life of freedom. See, in the old covenant, animals were offered as a sacrifice on first on makeshift altars and then in the tabernacle in the wilderness and then later in the temple in Jerusalem. And the animal was slaughtered in a particular ritualistic way and the blood of the animal was offered on the altar. The remaining portions of the animal were consumed, though, as I mentioned, the blood of animals could not be eaten. And so we read in Genesis 9, 4, but you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. That's in Genesis 9, 4. And in Leviticus 17, 14, for the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And that means cut off from the people of God, from the life of the community. So this understanding of blood being life does not apply to animals. The name of Adam, the first man, is derived from two Hebrew words, dam and adamah. Adamah means earth or ground because God formed him from the dust of the ground. The second word, dam, means blood because he's not a clay sculpture. He's a living man who has blood coursing through his veins. And since the first man, blood has been integral to the covenants with God. The covenant with Adam was made in his being given life, God mixing blood and earth, Dom and Adamah. The covenant uh, with Abraham required sacrificing animals and thus blood was spilled. Right? God went in between the pieces. And further, the sign of the covenant with Abraham was circumcision, which was bloody. And the Noahic covenant, likewise, was a connection to blood and animal sacrifice. When Noah and his family emerged from the ark, they took some of every clean animal and bird and offered them upon the altar. And we've already spoken about some of the elements of the Mosaic covenant. The final old covenant is the covenant with David. Under King David, animal sacrifice continued, but we see a different connection with blood. In this case, the covenant with David refers to establishing his kingdom forever through his bloodline. The ancient Jewish understanding of bloodlines is quite potent in no small part because of the division of the 12 tribes of the sons of Jacob. Now, before we move on to the new covenant, I want to look at one more event that might be peculiar to modern sensibilities. When Moses delivered the law to the people, they said to him, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's in Exodus 24, 3. 
After this, he wrote down all the words of the Lord and got up early to build the altar. He sent off young men of Israel to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice animals to God. Then he gathered half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood was thrown against the altar. After this, Moses read the Ten Commandments and the entire Mosaic law, and he took the blood and threw it on the people. Now, that's not normal, and it's not something that had been done before, uh, at least in Scripture. So what is Moses doing? Well, blood is life. And this was the confirming of the covenant of Moses between God and his people. Moses said to the people, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So covenants are more than mere promises, mere earthly promises, because they're based on the steadfast love and fidelity of Almighty God. A covenant made in blood is unbreakable, especially when God is involved. So now I think is a good time to move on to the new covenant. At the Last Supper, Jesus says that he is establishing a new and everlasting covenant in his blood. When blessing the cup of wine, Jesus said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. That's from Luke 22. And of course, Jesus knew imminently what was coming. In the Catholic understanding, the Last Supper is not just some ritual. It's intimately and metaphysically connected with the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So the cup which Jesus gave to the apostles on the night before he was to suffer was not some mere metaphor. Outside of space and time, Jesus held in his holy and venerable hands his own blood shed on the cross for the salvation of man. And there's a lot more to say here, but... If you want to learn more about the Holy Mass and this subject in particular, check out Praying the Mass in the back catalog of Good Distinctions, especially sessions four and five. Now, of course, the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus, is the new Passover. So call to mind everything that we remember about the Exodus Passover. And by being covered by the blood of the Lamb through baptism, much like the people of Moses were covered in blood, we enter into a covenant relationship with God. We are marked for eternal life, and as long as we remain in Christ and he in us, everlasting death will not touch us. Blood and water pouring from the side of Christ shows us that the holy blood of the God-man is far more precious than anything that came before. If the blood of Abel cried out from the ground for justice, imagine the crying out from the ground of the innocent blood of the Son of God. Jesus, unlike Abel, went to his death willingly, he offered himself in sacrifice. So justice in Christ's cross is that his love and mercy be fulfilled and sinful man would be redeemed. Jesus, our new Passover, breathed his last. The centurion at the foot of the cross, traditionally known by the name of St. Longinus, thrust his spear into the side of Christ. And in a moment, this, this miraculous and beautiful instance, blood and water flowed from the open side of Christ. The life-giving blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross began the restoration of all creation. In the water, we see the sacrament of baptism. In the blood, we see the Holy Eucharist. And by these great sacraments, we are reconciled with Almighty God. In baptism, we die with him and we rise with him. In a real sense, his blood washes us clean. 
In the Holy Eucharist, we bring the body and blood of Jesus into our own body and soul. Our blood mixes with his blood. And, and in the age of the church, we see this word martyrs. Martyrs. Martyrs means witnesses in Greek. In the tradition of the, the church, there's white martyrdom and red martyrdom. White martyrdom is where a person lives their life as a shining witness to Christ in the gospel. Whereas red martyrdom is called this because of the blood of the martyrs being shed. Now, out of love of Christ, the martyrs face death rather than renounce Christ. Their lives and their shedding of their blood become a testament of their convictions as well as God's grace. And in the book of Revelation, chapter 16, the bowls of wrath are poured out on the seven, by the seven angels in the vision of St. John. And many of these plagues mirror the plagues of Exodus. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and they became blood, exactly like the Nile turning into blood. And St. John records the angel saying this, just are you a holy one, you who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. That's from Revelation 16, 5 to 6. So in God's justice, those who spill innocent blood earn just judgment, just like Cain for killing his brother Abel. But God is teaching us that his justice always triumphs. In the cross of Jesus, we know that his justice is accompanied always by his love and his mercy. They're two sides of the same coin. But what do the saints and prophets merit by shedding of their blood for the love of God? Well, they receive eternal life in heaven with God forever. And what's more, the church benefits from their martyrdom and torrents of grace. The ecclesial writer Tertullian is often quoted as saying, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And I couldn't exactly source this quote effectively, but what he says in Apologeticus in Latin is pluris efficimor quotiens metimora vobis, semen es sanguis Christianorum, which more literally translated says, when you reap us, we multiply. The blood of Christians is seed. Now, both phrases show that when Christians are killed for love of Jesus, the church abounds in grace all the more. But I love this detail of the more literal translation. When you reap us, we multiply. God does not desire the death of the innocent, as we saw with Cain and Abel. He doesn't cause it in his perfect will, but he does allow it, and he brings a greater good from it. And when we are reaped by God, the chaff of our sinfulness falls away, and the grain is all that remains. We enter heaven in the triumph of Christ's cross. All you holy men and women, martyrs of God, pray for us. So I hope this little walk through sacred scripture has been interesting. It certainly was for me to put it together. What God has revealed to us is so marvelous. It's so amazing. And he writes straight with crooked lines over the course of millennia. And he's so immensely practical as well. And God knows that we are body and soul, and so he uses symbolism like blood to communicate his perfect love, gratuitous mercy, and steadfast justice to us. But I hope that this conversation about the many meanings of blood shows us that the both-and approach is far more fruitful than the limiting either-or approach. 
Words have meaning, regardless of what modern society and academia say. But that doesn't preclude words from having layers of true meaning. It's good to apply this lesson about the multiplicity of meanings to other topics as they arise. So next time you're talking to someone and they say, no, no, that only means this. Then you start getting frustrated and you start seeing red. Think about your blood pressure, which is probably rising. Take a deep breath and make some good distinctions. I'm Will Wright, and this has been The Meaning of Blood and Sacred Scripture from Good Distinctions. Thank you so much for listening. If, uh, if you like this, please share it with your friends and family. Please like us on faith, Facebook, follow us on Instagram, subscribe on YouTube. And above all, please go to gooddistinctions.com and become a free or paid subscriber uh, to get on our email list and stay in communication and really form this community uh, that Teresa and I are, are starting here online, which we're so excited about. And so let's end in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, now and ever and forever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thanks for listening, and have a wonderful day. And we'll see you next time here on Good Distinctions, because good distinctions are the spice of life.